Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today co-founder of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, Alyssa Court. We were raised to believe that we could be what we wanted to and that there was a humanities tradition that was waiting with open arms. In fact, that turns out to have been a false optimism. Alyssa will be showing how the American dream failed us and what sort of dream we should put in its place. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I'm always confused by the way MSNBC and the New York Times and other kind of left-leaning or even centrist media entities get so shocked whenever Trump's administrators or other Republicans go along with his lies or seemingly crazy sentiments. It's just amazing, just as if they're floored and flummoxed every single time someone goes and lies or makes a more preposterous lie. But I'll tell you, it all makes sense if you look at it more from the perspective of a frat hazing or a cult indoctrination. And I should know because I studied cults pretty extensively back in the 1990s. I actually... Uh, uh, had a girlfriend who got into a, a real cult um, in the 80s and spent a bunch of time uh, trying to get her out and <laughs> convince her what was going on there. Um, and then later, uh, ended up doing a cult study for an advertising agency. 
Uh, they were looking at the difference between cults and cult brands. And it's an interesting story, actually. You can read about that in, in my book, Coercion, came out back in 99. And what we were doing was interviewing people like in the in the Apple brand cult or the Harley Davidson brand cult and comparing their answers with those of people in, in spiritual cults. And what, what I did was I ended up coming up with a, a kind of a, a 10-stage uh, cult indoctrination pyramid. Um, but the way it really works, what it all came down to, was making the cult member do increasingly embarrassing or revealing things. One guy had um, his his cult followers, uh, one, on one of the first nights of their uh, involvement, they would have to dress up in a diaper and crawl around in front of him. Uh, or others would, uh, they'd pay tons of money. I mean, they'd give a guy so much money that they'd like hide it from the rest of their family, how much they're paying into the thing. Or some cults uh, will have you uh, get tested on certain machines and questioned, and really they're just lie detectors looking for how to burrow into your more embarrassing uh, life details or the ones you wouldn't want other people to know. That's how sometimes a cult will find out that that someone's gay and then use that as kind of a blackmail to keep them in. And they they can use these things against you, but more important, the the cult member uses the intensity of what they've done, their embarrassment or confusion, to justify what they've just done. They say, well, I wouldn't have done that terrible, strange, embarrassing thing or told that lie or lied to my husband um, unless this guy were really God. So the object of the game in a cult is really just to move up the pyramid of power and get closer to the cult leader. It's it's really a, a compelling competition. And so you end up doing increasingly daring and revealing things, things that go against your common sense as a way of proving your loyalty. And this creates a strict hierarchy. And that going against your common sense uh, is, is intentional. That's part of it. That's almost the reason for it. Do this embarrassing thing and break your obstacles. You can have your own internal doubt about what you're doing or about the cult leader, but you can't share your doubts with anyone else, or at least with no one lower than you in the pyramid, lest you spread your doubt and undermine their faith. I mean, you can admit your problems to someone higher than you, someone closer to the top, and then in theory, they can help you through it and help you rationalize why your doubts are baseless. You know, and that's how you get to the place where you'll say, oh, well, he had me crawl around in a diaper as a spiritual exercise in dropping ego. Or they're using my sexual history really just as a way to help me get clear. You can't share a doubt with someone lower without moving down to their level or below. You know, and if the person that you just <laughs> confessed your doubt to, uh, if they report you for that, then they go up and take your place. So cult leaders, they also demand lots of testimonials and statements of loyalty in front of everybody. I was at a wedding where the cult leader was invited, and he told the bride and groom that when they toast, he said, tell everyone why you love me more than anyone, even each other. And the bride and groom both did that. And later they told me, well, we wouldn't have done that if he weren't really God. So it was divinity retrofitted after the fact. 
all the loyalty, all this repression of doubt, all these testimonials are necessary for the cult to steel itself against the greater enemies, the established institutions and all the conspiracies looking to destroy it. Now, all this really can help us understand what's going on in Trump land. Not the policies, which may or may not be sound. That's a different argument. I'm just talking about the way loyalty is engendered within the Trump uh, family. Like when he got everyone in the, in the first cabinet meeting to compete, to state their gratitude. You can't backtrack after you've done that. Or getting people to tell lies, right? And from the beginning, poor Sean Spicer being commanded to overstate the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Eventually, that kind of overstatement, oh, it was the biggest crowd ever, it gets rationalized. You know, he, he can decide, well, you know, it, it may not have been the biggest crowd right there at the White House, but then there were all the people watching. Or even if it wasn't the biggest in numbers, it was the biggest in spirit. It was such a big change. Or uh, Hillary colluded with Russia. You know, the facts might be wrong, but the sense of it is what matters. You know, this lying for the leader or what feels like lying until you realize that it's somehow true on some other level, that's also the path to earning Trump's respect and expressing the greater truth of his administration. That's what it really means to take the red pill. You say the opposite of what you believe is true until white is black and black is white. That's part of the whole point. As more people move up the pyramid, the lies that once seemed so radically crazy become more accepted, more, more generally believed even. And then the leader gets more latitude. So I... A cult leader once go from, you know, I have not, I'm not having sex with the women in this cult to I'm not having sex with the underage women to, well, I didn't get the 14-year-old girl pregnant to, well, it wasn't really wrong for me to get that 14-year-old girl pregnant. You know, that's the equivalent of, oh, there was no collusion. Well, it's a witch hunt. Well, collusion isn't a crime anyway. So in Trump's case, it all makes a certain sense. His lies as some of us see them, are meant to cast light on the bigger lies enslaving us all. So birtherism as an exercise, even though it was disproved and Obama had his birth certificate and Trump had to say, okay, well, I guess he was born here. The whole episode got us in the practice of doubting. Just considering the possibility is the gateway drug to the red pill. Or the famous Pizzagate conspiracy where someone actually went into the pizza parlor and went shooting. You know, the, the administration could never condemn the shooting because the Pizzagate conspiracy itself was more important as an exercise in doubt. Or the, the debunking the claim that the, that the school shootings in Connecticut were being staged by, uh, by actors against the NRA. You know, they never could debunk that. They never could completely refuse that because the doubt is the important element here. Any behavior, any doubt is okay as long as it's being directed against the deep state and the mainstream media, the true enemies perpetrating the illusion. 
in that sense, Trump becomes like a messiah, revealing the bigger lie, each tweet poking another hole in the facade. Global warming is a hoax to force international cooperation with the global corporate conspiracy. Like any cult, it's all dependent on our own anxieties. Mind-over-matter cults attract cancer patients, just as fake news cults attract those living under surveillance capitalism. I've got duct tape on my laptop's webcam, for Christ's sake. We're each living under the threat of our own private Mueller investigation, and we're all dealing with the fallout of global capitalism. You know, at least I can identify with the urge to worship a messiah who can break down the fake news that the deep state is spreading about us all. But the problem is, all cults end up with some imagined doomsday confrontation. The, the impeachment, maybe, or when he's voted out of office, that judgment day. Will his followers be ready to fight and die for him? Will they have enough faith in him to believe that what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening? Or will judgment day be when he's gotten his followers to the point where he can simply admit the whole thing, that he's been working with Russia, not for his own gain, but in a by-any-means-necessary revolution against the treasonous deep state. That it's like Buddhism. We have to surrender everything, even what we thought of as the American government, in order to make America great again. And even many progressives know there's something wrong in there. We've watched enough documentaries about America staging coups and propping up dictators to know there is a deep state that does some pretty nasty stuff. If nothing else, we know there's a grain of truth, even in Trump's great lies. What if we're the ones in the cult, vowing fealty to the institutions of neoliberalism, the, the UN, the World Bank, the deep state, as if they really mean to promote global peace when, deep down, we suspect they're anything but? All we really know here is that at least one half of us, maybe both halves, are in a cult, listening to a pack of lies and marching toward oblivion. One of the lies many of us have bought over the years is the American dream. It seemed to work, at least back in the day of the GI Bill and guaranteed mortgages. You work hard, go to college, and things will work out. You'll be okay. And now, a lot of us who are privileged enough to be able to follow that path are finding ourselves unable to reach that place of security anymore. It's a new precarity shared by almost everyone in America today. And what our guest, Alyssa Court, has beautifully documented in her work at the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and in her new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. One of the first books I read of yours was Branded. Then you had you have a poetry book that I know of called Monetized. And now we got Squeezed. And at first, when I look at these construction, these sort of, the stuff done where people are being squeezed, they're being branded, they're being monetized, it feels at first glance like you're suggesting that there's a passivity to it. Like in my programmer be programmed. You're either active programmer or you're just being programmed by them. But as I, I read the work and contemplate it, I realize you're not really saying, oh, there's this bad guy who's squeezing you, therefore you're the squeezed passive. But you're almost suggesting that 
these problems that we like to blame on certain people are like these systemic, uh, faceless. Uh, it's the game board itself that is, to use another, rigged, kind of stacked <laughs> against us. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, my joke is I obviously like verbs. I like verbs <laughs> that are uh, a kind of a, aggressive and they indicate a almost like a both an aggression of the world onto the person and a somewhat self-aggression and branded i was talking about self-branding that was my favorite section and it was like how teen girls in, internalized and kind of executed the uh the corporatization of their identities on themselves they were saying things like i am pepsi i am coke uh peer-to-peer and this is obviously with facebook and all the social instagram it's gone to a new level with something like monetized, I was actually in the cover, which is a Marilyn Minter photo of an eye, like looking inward. I was talking about um, gender and, and digi- digital culture and money and how we kind of, how we select language and see ourselves as women and how we, how we monetize ourselves in different ways as, as people in America. And it's both something that's being done to us and something that we learn to do to ourselves, which, which is a basic cultural studies thing, right? This is not I'm not inventing this. I mean, this is like, you know, this idea that we're simultaneously being acted upon by a society. And then we, as, as subjects of that society, we do it, we, we then um, become our own, um, simultaneously our own master and servant, if you will. Right, our we're own, doing unto others or unto ourselves. Yeah. And then, and the whole thesis in, in Squeeze, to get back to where we started, is one of uh, self-blame, where many of the people in the book start to see themselves as the source, the only one at fault, or where they'll know that it's a social issue, that they, you know, they have unfair level of taxation, they're self-employed, um, their work is now precarious, and it wasn't when they went into the field, uh, they don't have pensions, they don't have social security, but then they also say, but look, there's that guy over there that managed to figure it out. Why didn't I? So and then, the, then the sort of self-squeezing happens where they start to uh, uh, question themselves and attack themselves. Right. And it seems to come from so many different sides at once. So there's that traditional American Calvinist can do, you know, Napoleon Hill sort of thing that, that if you're not making it, it's because there's something wrong with you. You know, you don't have the spirit, you don't have the gumption, you don't have the can-do, you're not thinking positively, or you're not working hard. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, young man, you know, man, of course, and get to go to the city, you know, (laughs) and get your... And if it doesn't work, it's because something's wrong with you, right? You know, But then I guess it also comes from now the super modern new age world, which you also talk about, the the sort of think it, be it, grow it, have it, uh, the secret almost uh well yeah i write in this actually about um i don't know if you want me to read from this sure. there's a there's a section where I, um yeah that becomes a kind of questions around self-actualization so maybe the kind of traditional americana now kind of reactionary conservative ideas that of bootstrapping you're supposed to be able to succeed on your own um is one part of this and the other part is the kind of lean in self-actualization, come on ladies, you know, uh, do it for yourself, um, work-life balance, you should have, you, you've, you've got this kind of... Right, that all we're those- supposed to somehow psych ourselves up into this state. Yeah, this- and that it's a psychological failing if you can't. Right, and that- or a spiritual failing, yeah. a re- you know, a sort of prosperity gospel failing if yeah. you can't. And, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a failure of 
aspiration and courage and um, but, mental health. I mean, there, yeah, you want to read so that? So I found yeah. this section. Yeah. Um, this personal experience was partly how I arrived at what was to become the mantra of this book. It's not your fault. It seems key to me to recognize that feeling in the red or on the edge isn't all your personal problem. And while some psychological analysis or boosts might help, the problem is not being able to afford to live in America. And it can't be cured by self-help mantras. It can't be mended simply by creating a resume that utilizes several colors of printer ink or a regimen of cleansing green juices. The problem is systemic. Right, but then can't we just get someone to help with our LinkedIn profile and do a little bit better picture and more connections and a, and then it, it'll work, right? Well, this is the whole idea in the that I write about in the book and I wrote an opinion piece in the Times related to it, which right. is on the second act industry because I started to investigate some of these coaches and programs and it, yeah, it was absolutely a lot of that. It was like, here, let's improve your LinkedIn approach. Um, let's have these conversations. That's in quotes for people who can't see um, about why you can't get to the next step. You, oh, you were laid off and you're 45 or 50. You know, this is you can be retrained if, if you follow, you know, all my protocols. This is the coach speaking or the certificate program. And then you'll be OK. And a lot of the people I was meeting had, were not. You know, they had done all these things. And then that, they become another source of self-blame. Like, why can't I have my second act? And the thing I became kind of fascinated when I was writing about like all this like new language of the squeeze. So it's not just squeezed. It's also <laughs> side hustles. Oh, we're, you know, these cutesy poo ways of talking about like basically this kind of nightmarish new reality. You're supposed to have three or four jobs. There's something in the book. There's some number like 17% of people have all these multiple, you know, uh, have other jobs or second acts as like a second act industry where people are talking about, you know, you just need the vitamin C. That's confidence. This is literally a line from one of these second act um, kind right. of oils. And the reason you don't have the, the confidence is because at, you know, 49 or 50, they forced you to take the package from this company that where you are actually creating value. Right, exactly. And the, the language with that is wonderful too. Reimagined. You could have your job reimagined. I, I, I just love that. Into what? Like, and, and, and the sort of, and this is this is a very kind of rush coffee in world because it's it's like digital linguistics or something. It's like this <laughs> influence, like reimagined. It's supposed to be, yeah, like as you were saying, player player right. be played. But like um, you're supposed to ima imagine this virtual world where you're going to be able to um, have these third or fourth chances. That hard work will make the difference. The other phrase I just love is right to, right to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, the yeah. right to right to work without a union yeah. telling you that you should be paid for it. I mean, but the, but so what, where we end up though is in in this state of precarity. I mean, the part of the reason why we're having this conversation is because the precarity is no longer just for the kid in the in the projects who can't figure out. He's working at Foot Locker and at a restaurant and, you know, taking care of his parents that now the middle class, the the I mean, gosh, when I was when I was like in college or getting out of college, Rick Linkletter made the movie Slacker about these mainly college graduate intellectual people, bohemians hanging out in Austin at coffee shops and talking and 
somehow scraping by even, I guess off the fat of the land. But there was a way you could just get a job as a barista somewhere and have enough money to read the crap that you want to read. Your parents are going to complain that you're not amounting to anything, but you could make it through, get a job, work in a bookstore. You just, there were, there were, Ways and now those just aren't there anymore. I mean, I think that that was 1990 slacker, and so you think about what has happened in even Austin since then. And a lot of it was like things like South by Southwest. I'll be frank; it's like these festivals, this this culture, and let's let's look 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 let's look a little self critically at this. Yeah. Like, what role did we play in this? Right. Even? You know, like naming the burgeoning you know tech culture that then became completely commodified and then wound up you know taking over you know, small cities that were hot cities for a while. And then they had the kind of like homeostasis where they were like, okay. But I'd argue that we were pretty much against this from the beginning. You know, we were, but you know, we were on the sort of more Mondo 2000 cultural side of this thing, looking at how could these technologies enable, you know, decentralized peer to peer distributed power. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, Wired Magazine came along and said, no, this is for the NASDAQ stock exchange. And then everything became a business plan with an exit strategy. And they ended up creating a just massive extraction of wealth and power and everything. But what do we say to those who look at us as we were both college professors? Mm -hmm. We are the very elite that, you know, Trump and many of his convention followers would say that we are the very problem. And there's, they would say, look, we're, you're lazy. You're lazy. You want to sit and read and write for your job? You want to think about things? And- well, this is part of the, this is another point in my book. I do what you love and the way in which things like follow your dreams or do what you love have become um, impossibilities. Um, uh, there's a theorist, uh, Lauren Berlant, who write, wrote a book called Cruel Optimism, that kind of, which I love that phrase, <laughs> that kind of names that too, that says, not in those words exactly, but that this is part of the problem that we were raised, uh, generation I was born in the 70s, we were raised to um, believe that we could be what we wanted to, and that there was a there was a humanities tradition that was waiting with for us with open arms, and that in fact that turns out to have been an uh, like a false optimism, and that for many people now they're sort of tr- over in a way they're overtrained um, for the kinds of jobs that they can actually get, and that was borne out when I was talking to adjuncts who you know were making seventeen hundred dollars a class, uh, they were teaching six or seven classes, and of course that winds up being do the math on like $20,000. And, you know, they had uh, kids, they needed braces and lessons and ice cream. And he couldn't, he literally said, he's like, I can't pay for my kids ice cream. And he had a PhD in history and he was teaching constantly. It wasn't like he, um, and that was somebody who had followed the, the dreams of that, the period that we grew up in, who thought that they were, they could live a life, not just the life of the mind, but a life of service around the mind, right? Um, so I think one thing is interesting about all these jobs when I think about them is they do have a care element because they're tending to our society. They're, 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 they're service, they're like high level service jobs in a sense. Like that's what unifies a lot of the different professions here, like nursing and uh, being a college professor, school teacher, et cetera, accountants, you know, like they're not, um, they're kind of what it, we need still, like a backbone of society, and maybe not in the same way as a, like janitors or. But they're the um, most precarious one. The more the more service oriented you are, like if uh, take the college professor job, the more the closer to a 
a city college or a community college that I go where I can actually be using what I'm doing to serve people. The more precarious you are. Right. As opposed to, let me just go to MIT and get a, a lab sponsored by some friggin' dot com and do my crazy, you know, research on whatever, you know, psychedelic digital technology, mind altering VR. You know, someone's getting funding, looking to fund that right now just because I said it. I can feel it. I was like, oh, I can fund that. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Well, this um, is part of it. Like, so what I argue for in the book is something uh, called a fair labor seal, which would be like fair trade. And we could try to apply in the college level. We could start applying it to colleges that mm. have dependent on how they treat their adjunct labor, their labor in general. Do they permit unions? Um, do the adjuncts have access to health care? How much are they being paid per class? How many classes are they teaching? How many adjuncts per se are there and like out of there? And let the parents know. The parents who are sending their kids uh, for for like at least a uh, $100,000 education, much, probably much more, what they're actually getting. So you also have been working with uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. Yeah. So Barbara in 2012 founded this organization called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And I sort of founded its current, or, or, you know, incarnation um, four or five years ago now. And what we do at EHRP is we give grants to uh, writers who write about inequality, photographers, documentarians, and animators. Um, We give a pretty decent, we give the word rate that many of us got uh, 10 or 15 years ago that people no longer get, plus expenses. A quarter of our contributors are lower income. Uh, But they were all professional journalists and photographers. They just have fallen on hard times. Um, One of them was working as a domestic worker. Um, Another was a former vet. You know, it's like interesting lives behind the the journalism and essays they're producing. And then we co-publish with everything from The Times to The Nation to The Guardian, etc. And one of our films was just nominated for a documentary Emmy. I just think to give people a decent wage, you know, to, to write, it's not going to solve all their problems, but it's going to keep a certain kind of journalism of, alive. And, th- and by co-publishing rather than just have it on our organization's non- or nonprofit right. organization site, which would kind of a destination site model, I, I, don't, I don't think that works. I think you co-publish with places with huge followings. Although- well, plus for the journalist to get the uh, extra money. She's in The Guardian. She's in The New York Times. But then she gets the money on top. So the right. idea is that it's not only coming from us, it's coming at least a little from, uh, right. and we, we're going to hold some of these media companies accountable, who some of whom don't pay anymore. Right. So part of why I even started this book and coined the term the middle precariat to describe white collar precarity was just, that was was I was running this thing. And I was seeing, I, I was, met, I edited a journalist who was selling his plasma. And then when I gave book talks around this book, uh, academics got up and said, oh, well, I've been selling my plasma. Well, they say it's good for the hematocrit. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I'm a dog. I'm not admitting, I admit nothing. The but, cruel um, optimist. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is Alyssa Court of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of the new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. You can join Team Human and support our effort to find the others, hear their stories, 
and share their strategies for exercising human agency in the face of corporate, political, and technological control by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You can get signed copies of the upcoming Team Human book, access to our message boards, the ability to participate on the show, get premium content, and more important, keep this whole Team Human thing going. we should talk also you and I about the robots because I feel like you would actually be kind of the expert in this and and could help me you could you could oh, add to my please. my thinking about this i mean so i wrote about uh these robots called tugs uh and now, at the time of the book, um, 140 hospitals now employ 500 robots and they worked in hospital pathology units and blood banks the medication delivery robots are programmed to require only a bi- only a biometric access and pin code from a human to finalize the meds deliveries and these were very cute robots right uh, they have some of them have named they're named in the hospital they're called like C3PO and it, all this stuff to try to domesticate them and make them into things that are cute but the the truth of the matter when I talked to one of the people from the company that creates them, I said, "What well, really? Why are you doing this?" Um, and they said, "Oh, they replaced the FTEs." And I said, "Oh, I thought that was another robot. No, full-time employees." Mm. <laughs> FTEs. Had a, I love that we get like a C-3PO word for humans. No, exactly. Now. And there was a symmetry between the TUGs, <laughs> the right calling tugs, and the FTEs, the humans. And <laughs> and at some point, I said something. Uh, uh, I, you know, I asked the the guy at the company, I said, um, uh, the tugs simply get the job done. There are no Watsons. You know, they're not that bright. I said, oh, they're working class robots. I joked, every reporter has an angle. He answered tartly. <laughs> <laughs> they are, though. They're, they're the proletariat robots. The proles as opposed to the whatever they're going to be. The AI. Con- the yeah. AIs. Yeah, right. Yeah. The AIs that we give the rights of humans Yeah, it's, to. Like the bl- it's like some kind of Blade Runner proto-replicant, you know, revolution that's about to happen. But as somebody who is uh, interested a lot in technology, I mean, I wonder what you think when you read about these kind of jobs. I mean, do you think, oh, like David Graeber says, or, you know, um, uh, lots of other people, like these are bullshit jobs who wants to be pushing sheets through a hospital who want who even wants to be dispensing medication i think actually a lot of people do want to be doing that but you know a lot of the jobs the robots are are going to do and are doing now are supposedly unpleasant i have a different attitude about this but i'm curious your thoughts well i have two main thoughts one is i don't think robots are actually as efficient as they appear to be right. I think they hide a huge amount of externalities. So it's like, okay, we got this robot here, but in order to make that robot, we had to send ten kids into caves in the Congo to get the rare earth metals for its processor or something like that. So there's the pollution and the crap yeah. and all that. So robots are a great, great way for corporations to externalize the human impact and the labor impact and the environmental impact of what they're doing. So there's that. And on the other hand, the whole notion of employment to me feels fundamentally ass backwards. The idea, I mean, I'm, I don't want to sit here and argue for, you know, universal basic income necessarily, but the idea that you need a job in order to justify your, your room and board seems to me to be kind of crazy. And that jobs are, jobs are an artifact of 
the chartered monopoly. You know, it used to be people worked, they traded, they had their own, everyone was a small cottage industry. And then those were all outlawed and you had to work for one of the official chartered monopolies as an employee. And now we've accepted employment as some weird condition of nature where it's it's just a, a, a condition of, of the corporatocracy. You know, which is selling time, selling time for wages as opposed to having a role in your community. Uh-huh. You know, what what do you do? What is your what do you do? Oh, I, I help right. I teach kids math after school. They really need it. You know, it's like what is oh I guess my job. Okay, I'm a tutor and I get, you know, forty dollars an hour to teach SATs to these rich kids and then you know, it's like uh, um I don't know, just the construction of jobs, it's not ideal. I know we're not on a commune. We're not you know, which we're, which is sort of I I'm I'm much more into this kind of these little towns as commons with people having roles and it's way more fun to have a role and to participate in the community. Right. Yeah. And it's certainly more fun. But the the question is like, if you're working in a movie theater as an usher and suddenly now there are robots replacing ushers, there's, um, right. And one of the things I'm interested in too, is like what happens to the human experience of the people on the other side? Could we have a cut like a customer, um, consumer rebellion against like robotic customer service representatives. I think we will see that. I mean, I'm, I'm once you start to see Uber cars that are driven by computer, I imagine, you know, legions of teen boys with like chalk figuring out how to draw stuff on the pavement to send the cars off bridges and stuff. I, I just can't imagine they're not going to be trying to hack them. Well, not just that. It, who, I mean, could be look at, look at what's happening with other uh, countries hacking our electoral process, why wouldn't we be hacked in general? I mean, and that could right. be ultimately a lot more costly to have the whole system of driverless cars in some ways hacked. Um, right. But I was really, I was kind of fascinated. I talked to this union that was organizing uh, cab drivers, Lyft drivers. They were having kind of discussion groups about the robots. Mm-hmm. And the image I love, they were describing what it, what it was those, those discussions were like, where they're talking about this future where they'd be replaced, where they'd all be on their Bluetooth teeth or their phones yeah. driving, have co- kind of talking about the, the, the driverless cars that are... <laughs> and, and the whole idea was to kind of create, build consciousness among the drivers of what, what's in store. Well, I mean, a lot of it, though, has to do with the... the the bigger digital question is for me isn't isn't really the construction of robots so much as the the utilitarian value system that seems to come along with digital it's like with digital everything that used to be kind of fuzzy or undefined kind of disappears if it's not on the spreadsheet it doesn't exist and that humans end up being judged on their utility value. And a machine is always going to have better utility value because you can tweak it for whatever number you're asking it to have. But then, like you're saying, you have to ask, was that what the experience was? Did I come to... Do I want to maximize the utility value of my cinema experience? Mm -hmm. You know, or am I paying... What am I actually paying for? What is it that I want here? I mean, it's... I hate to think of, you know, oh, well, the usher is some kind of a social prostitute that he's here to be nice to me or to create. He's like a Disney character. Like it's like there's emotional labor in that. Like, 
but also it's sort of it's like a nostalgic animatronic you know like here's your flashlight sir i mean the truth is that's right. not really what an usher's like anymore is it but um no they're there to keep the kids from coming in the back door yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know keep your keep your feet off the seat or whatever i don't know i mean i get if that's the last role of humans in our society is customer service that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> don't don't replace the TWA or whatever TWA the the, the airline yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, phone answering thing with one of those computers that I don't know is a computer. Yeah, we could have a, some kind of consumer rebellion. I have like I'm offering a bunch of thoughts about what what we can do as well, as consumers around this because you know I was just my mom had been in the hospital and. I was I was reporting this at the time and she was like getting knee surgery and all she wanted was somebody bringing her like blackberry jello with and smiling at her. And that is not I mean because they say oh the robots are just bringing the food and taking away the sheets but those actual those experiences are like a, I would say a, at least a quarter of what makes somebody uh, a hospital visit bearable. It's like the having, main thing you wait for. Is yeah. a, when is the candy strap yeah, coming yeah. back in with a book or something? Yeah, you don't really want to then see a little robot. But, you know, that's the question from the very beginning when once they were doing See You, See Me, which was the original uh, uh, the original FaceTime on, on computers. They could do streaming media. One of the first things they wanted to do was um, a synagogue called me up to ask, or it was it American Jewish something or other, is, should it be considered kosher for an old person to attend Shabbat virtually with a computer rather than going? Because they wanted to know about they're using electricity on Shabbat and they're not really in the room and all that. And I'm like, all I could say was if it denies one teenager the mitzvah, the, the, the honor of going to that woman's house and bringing her, you know, getting up early to bring her to synagogue, then it's not kosher. You know, that, that, and that feels like that's what we're doing with our technology. Where we're denying ourselves the 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 opportunity to do bonding community service for one another. Yeah. Which is I mean, not to get it done. It's to do it. It's the right. doer is the, is the beneficiary. But also like, this is one of the points of the book too, that we, we really hate care caregiving in this country. Like there's so much contempt for, for nannies, for domestic workers, for nurses, for teachers, for people right. who perform these crucial roles. Yeah. We had Palak Shah on here from, uh, uh the American domestic workers. Oh, Alliance. Um, awesome. It's like, Oh, or national domestic workers Alliance. It was like, oh my God. The, the unseen, uh, it's not just unseen, but, but, but hidden labor and how it's despised because of the people's feeling of guilt that they're not actually taking care of themselves. But I'd argue that the way that mothers are treated in the workplace echoes that. It's sort of it, it, that they're actually like nesting dolls of care and, you know, contempt for care. So there's that the fact that mothers have a proximity to caring for a vulnerable creature um, makes them less desirable employees in the same way that people who actually do care work um, people feel free and are uh, to be to uh, treat them poorly or to underpay them. So it's like it, it's actually kind of a often these these two conditions are interlocking too. And you it's have, weird because that human to human care is maybe the last thing that robots won't be able to do for real. They for can't real. establish and it's also rapport. the growth industry. So this is the thing like nursing and all these kinds of um, professions that that. They're that they're kind of preparing robots to um, not replace entirely, but to sort of 
um, skim off the top of some of the jobs. Those are the growth jobs. And these are the, and also, you know, trucking, which was a famously a way that people entered the middle class. You didn't have to have a great education. This is like, you know, um, and now it's they're going the way of whatever it is, dual. <laughs> these evil trucks driving, uh, uh, driving down the road. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. So when you you made baby, I did made baby, and then it was alive and small. Yep, and you found that you were not the 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 kind of stupid mother with estrogen or oxytocin that people expected you to be. But you were, and turns out many are extraordinarily highly effective, even maybe more effective in post baby mode than normally. Yeah, so I, 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 there's a phrase uh, I, I used initially, like, I mother with my brain, not my body. <laughs> and, that was, and, like, my point of attachment with my daughter was literally when she looked up and saw the black and white, you know, those black and white cards, with, you know, those kind of op art yeah, yeah. cards that they now, that every Bobo family like us has. Yeah, because they um, say that babies see black and white before they see colors. Right, like, and you, you want to stimulate their brains. Right. And, like, the moment she saw it and responded to it, I was like, that's my daughter. <laughs> So like the cute, the cuteness, like, eh, and like, or when she was able to start like conversing, oh my God, that was, that was definitely, that that was the moment. So yeah, so I wasn't, I didn't have like a lot of the, um, more woo woo mommy, uh, elements in my personality. And then, you know, I went back to work really early and then I wound up producing a lot. Like I, like I've written three books, I guess, since, since she was born, she's seven and running this organization, et cetera. So one of the things that struck me was that motherhood is seen as a penalty uh, in the workplace by the corporate culture, by employers, and by, uh, you know, sociologists even who read read the numbers. They see that mothers are paid $11,000 less than non-mothers initially. Um, and then um, it, you your salary goes down 7% per child. Um, so it's like, it's it's substantial and way less than than men. Forget about it. And there's um, not a logic behind this, right? But you're well, thinking, there's a lot. I guess the logic is, you know, moms are going to be less. I mean, the idea is they're going to be less loyal to the company. Maybe they'll have to leave early. They'll be more. It's, 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 it's the, right. the stigma of care. It's the taint of care, right? Because they're they're if they're a new mom, then they're sort of love. Uh, their the, their their love attributes are being uh, activated, and they might not be as ruthless to defend the company. They as might they not would be as be. ruthless, but then they're also like the kid's tooth falls out, and they're covered. Oh, in they're blood, not going to be there that covered morning. Covered in blood, they'll like run and help. Oh, terrible, right? And so my this is one of my main ideas in this book, which I don't even articulate. I haven't been able to articulate until recently. It was not in the book, but it's like we now run work. We use work defines home. Work shapes this extreme daycare. It shapes our senses of ourselves and our time. But why not, why won't, why can't home shape work? And why can't we have ideas about the workplace that are you know more emotive and interconnected and uh, familial? And also in that way we can recognize what uh, maternal workers can give. Well, there was a study done that showed that moms publish 
they did they looked at a publishing of academic moms, 10,000 academic moms, and saw that they published a lot more after they had kids. And there's other studies done that of the like the neuroscience of motherhood, and they saw that there's uh, like sh- sharpened attention. There was more um, uh, kind of uh, b- better time management, better leadership skills. Huh. Like so, they actually there's been both social science and anthropology on this and neuroscience. And that, that really interested me because just when I spoke to them, spoke to mothers from my book and people I knew, they were more productive. They did have this, this kind of concentrated attention. Um, one scholar called the relationship of mothers to children, um, a maternal thinking. And it was a really, it was, you're relating to open structures because kids' brains work differently and that it actually, it made sense that they could be better in the workplace. Workplaces now demand flexible labor for us to deal with many different kinds of minds and different kinds of personalities. Couldn't it help that we have to like lead in the home as mothers we lead, and, and parents in general lead minds that are so different from ours? Isn't it? Couldn't we see that as a positive? And so I, I term this whole constellation of things the motherhood advantage. And is, are people listening? I don't know. It was on Slate, and yeah, people. It'll yeah, actually, it got... I'm supposed to go talk to the, like the HR people at some big company in in October. You're yeah. bring it up. I will. I, I shall. I will send you all the all the data, and there's a bunch of studies, and I think it's important. I I feel like this could actually be a useful point to get out there. You know. Anyway, I mean yeah. the thing I'm. I keep going back to is if we crash the the sort of prayer version of of career and life if we i mean i remember the whenever it was the 70s uh, joseph campbell did these all these interviews with uh, bill moyers was interviewing him and the thing that all the new agers loved about it was campbell explained that the sort of the central myth of of our world is you know follow your bliss and the universe will conspire to support you in it. Well, there's your follow your dreams again. Right. Follow your bliss. And on the one hand, it comes, you know, from the Frank Baum, Wizard of Oz, click your heels, say the mantra, <laughs> um, you know, at which which led right through from theosophy right to, you know, Seth Speaks right to The Secret and Amway and uh, uh, Dale Carnegie and Norman Vincent Peale, who was Trump's main preacher, you know, so... Think it, be it, grow it, you know, and that if you don't have that, it, it, I mean, the, the the dark side of that, of course, is if you're not thinking right, you don't get the good thing. But then what do we replace that with? Is there is there a, a motivate, motivating myth or ethos or narrative or something that we use? Or is it, or are you saying we got to just kind of face the reality, these sort of input-output systems and how it really works. And I mean, where does the spirit go at this point? Well, yeah, part of what people keep asking me about that and, uh, you know, what do I tell my kid? You know, when she says I want to be an artist or a singer, I wince. When she says a writer, I go, oh, my God, you know. Whereas I know when I I was a kid, I was being, you know, prepped to be a writer. I was being conditioned to be one. I mean, I wrote about that in my second book, Hothouse Kids. And um, so sort of a strange thing is like, where is this kind of mixed messaging going to lead her uh, or any of this generation with parents like us that are, I mean, I don't know, do you, what, what do you say when your kid says, I want to be an artist? She doesn't really say that. I, I don't know if my kid believes in the future as such. 
<laughs> well, that's that's dark. That's a little dark. Yeah, I don't think she looks at it that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, she wanted. I mean, she wanted to be a toy maker. I mean, I guess there will always be toy makers. That's. Uh, I mean, hopefully, yeah. I think she wants to do some something in in toys or jewelry or. But okay. she's young, you know. She's not thinking. I mean, I was supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, it was a first. The first generation of Jewish Americans yeah. who, you know, weren't working in the basement of the of the grocery store. It was like, okay, I was the college bound generation. Plus so your go, parents didn't go to college? My dad did, but he, you know, worked himself through it and was a bookkeeper and a CPA. And so he was the first professional. Interesting. And then the second generation goes to, you know, yeah. either you do that or retail or whatever he whatever his generation yeah. did. And mine could then was supposed to go be doctors and lawyers, and I kind of skipped it to become this, you know, whatever it is I am, freelance intellectual, or what they would call an artist. On the other hand, I mean, obviously, if robots are going to take care of everything, then... No, do you, exactly. Everyone, the humans all become artists and musicians. I mean, on the very first episode of Team Human, we had uh, Astra Taylor and Tom Goki on. And uh, we called it, You Are Not Alone, meaning, you know, A-Lone, right. L-O-A-N. And part of what was so important in in their message was the the importance of overcoming the shame and isolation of being in debt and really harnessing the the power of of our collective situation. If all the people in debt knew each other and looked at each other and worked together, they get some power. Those of us who are slowly realizing that the mantra that we've been told, whether from California or from the New Age movement or from uh, Frank Baum, that just be what you want to be, you know, and whatever, dream it and you have it, that we realize that that's not true. Most of us are still ashamed. Most of us think, well, even Donald Trump got to think what he wanted to be and look at that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's all the billionaires out there that did it. Um so we're ashamed that we can't or, or aren't really making ends meet or can't. What, what sort of, what do you see, what do you envision as the path through which we find each other and, and let go of the shame and then work on this rather than, you know, how do we break that sort of cycle of shame and embarrassment and stop just putting pictures of ourselves on Facebook of ourselves succeeding when we're not? Well, that's that was one of the points in my book, actually. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lev Manovich's study in Equilogram, where he looked at all the photos that were taken in like London, New York, Sao Paulo, and he saw that it, he was looking at Manhattan. I think it was something like, well, the, the majority of images were of expensive locales that were much more expensive than where the people actually lived. He, he analyzed like 8 million um, images that, that were on people's social media feeds. And I thought that was really uh, telling because that was what I was also hearing from people in, in Squeeze. They were talking about they hated going on Facebook. They hated going uh, on Instagram because then they'd be uh, not only accosted by like rich kids of Instagram or this constant uh, sales pitch and um but they'd be their own friends celebrating their beach vacations and their great, you know, jobs, et cetera. What we can do in real life, I think we can have co more conversations. And um, I talked to a group called Class Action in Jamaica Plain, and they actually teach parents and teachers and other, other 
people who interact with kids, how to have conversations about class with their kids. Hmm. And I found that totally fascinating. And I started to try to implement it. So I started to have conversations that were like with people I knew, you know, either about their economic situation or their feelings about their social class, um, about my own with my kid, uh, our own about, you know, everything from the wealthy kids in her school to the homeless people on the block and where she felt she fit in between those two poles and like what that meant. And just try to destigmatize class identity in that way. And I think we don't have those conversations because we think that no one wants to talk about their class position when actually people kind of do. Like, I'd love to say why I've chosen to be a so-called brain worker and not, as you suggested, one of our brilliant friends could do this, run a hedge fund. Um, or, you know, I, I think there are people who work with their hands who could talk about class almost as a practice rather than a rung on a ladder. Like, oh, yeah, I've, I've chosen to be a manual, someone working with their hands or fixing stuff. And that's that's my category. And I've done that and not done these other things and try to articulate that to kids, our kids and our our worlds so that there's more kind of mutual respect around those positions. Right. It'd be healthier than I mean, remember when I was raised, the way I learned about class was my brother and I had complained about something. I think we had toy baseball mitts and all the other kids had like real leather ones and stuff. My father's like, get in the car. And we drove from our little house in Larchmont, New York, took us down to the South Bronx. Show, I mean, and this is early 70s when it's just bombed out, scary, horrible play. It's like, this is, you know, this is how people live, you know, and you should be thankful you're not here. And so the... the well, had he come from the South Bronx? Yeah. <laughs> that so it actually wasn't just like... Because that's, that's, that's true. actually kind of interesting. Like, yeah. that's... That would, yeah. Oh, but well, it would sort of. We're but, making progress, Mr. Rushkov. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but it is interesting though that class is anchored not just in me, but I mean in a lot of people. Class is anchored as beware. You beware. know, if you if you uh, uh, don't abide by the rules of this system, you could end up only in America, right? You can end up in this poorhouse. You can end up destitute it's like but, you but know, I felt you're like in it, finland and it's like you're yeah. poor it's like oh well you'll have to live here and you'll you know these will be your doctors and this will be your school and then it's like i was talking to a german friend uh this summer and she just was astonished that just astonished that our summer vacations for kids lasted so long like her kid was already going back to school in august so right. that she said so what do you do does the state help you with the <laughs> like, no. and i was like what about snow days i was like no like there's all this and this is these small hits, I feel like we need to be able to talk openly and with one another about it. Like, what's happening on our snow days? Um, you know, can we afford a babysitter on the snow day comfortably, you know? Or could we try to collectivize it more? Like, I've felt that all those conversations that have been brought out through the book and just generally when I know people and they're able to tell me things, like, it's been really productive for, like, our relationship and for coming up with small-scale solutions like the co-parenting ones. Like, we're, I'm obviously not doing anything radical like that, and my friends aren't, for the most part, either. But maybe I'll be able to be like, okay, you really need me to pick up your kid. You really can't figure out how to access right. a sitter at that time. Uh, and you really don't, it's really a hardship to pay that for you guys. Okay, I can do that. Or, you know, just those kind of small yeah. conversations. But just even that talk is communism. I mean, for every favor that you do for someone is another thing that's been taken off the market, is another 
another hour of somebody's I labor. I think it's pride and shame and that yeah. lead people not to explain these things. I mean, I think it is. Um, I mean, it's not to say like, I think I've, there are those parents where you'll say, I, I just can't do pickup and they don't go, oh yeah, let me help you. I mean, there, there are yeah. those people, but I, I think there's a lot of people who, who do. And, um, and it, when it, it's it's led to I I you know I've reported on this it's it leads it can lead to these sort of more barter and trade arrangements it can lead to people um, you know trying to help trying to help each other or at least just having open conversations so you're not just fronting I mean I talk about that as you know the fronting right. that fronting prevents solidarity there's just no way to and like a lot of a lot of people we know front like it's not this is that's not this is not off our radar is it right. Doug I mean you know there's like there's just whether they're aware of it or not, they're not talking about how they're going to have to go into debt to afford their kids' college. They're not talking about um, in New York. People talk about how much real estate costs. That there's like weird yeah. solidarity around that, um, but you know they won't be talking about how they've been taken off their health care plan, like with each other, as much as they probably should. But if they did, you know, I would advise them. Oh, you go to this union. You do that. Like, let's right. make this into a thing. Like, there might be kinds of possibilities that would open up that if, if we could start admitting all this to each other. Right. That's part of being on Team Human is that, you know, is yeah. being willing to be vulnerable and say what's actually, what is, what is going on here yeah. rather than pretending something's not. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for being a true member, a working member of Team Human. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Alyssa Court of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of the new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. You can find out more about our guest, her books, and her upcoming appearances at teamhuman.fm. You can also support the show, find out about live events, and more. Our show was produced by Stephen Bartolome. Our associate producer is Luke Robert Mason at Virtual Futures. Our community manager is Josh Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.